there is a growing awareness that sharing benefit and burden across genders is a key tenet of a just energy transition. But it's easier said than done in Southeast Asia where energy trends, perceptions and a data void could trip up genuine progress. This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Liang Li. Big energy developments are coming for Southeast Asia. Renewables and biofuels are knocking on doors, while coal is increasingly being shown the exit. Many of these developments will no doubt help to cut emissions, but the growing body of research suggests that there is no guarantee the benefits and risks can be shared equitably without proper planning. Such risks could be especially salient along gender lines. Few women work in the energy sector, while their livelihoods are at risk of being upended by big energy projects. The loss of coal sector jobs, which are mostly held by men today, could have profound consequences on gender dynamics in families and societies too. So what exactly do these issues look like on the ground? What's holding effective governance back? And how can stakeholders chart a viable way forward? Two experts are with us to discuss these issues. We have Amira Bilkis, an Energy Modelling and Policy Planning Associate at the ASEAN Centre for Energy. Amira led the development of the Centre's Renewable Energy and Gender Roadmap launched last August. We also have with us Mei Tazin Ang, a climate change researcher at the International Institute for Environment and Development, who has published studies on gender and the clean energy transition in Southeast Asia. So uh, Mei, can I just start with you? Like I mentioned, why is it important to consider the connection between gender and energy transition and, you know, within Southeast Asia? How does this look like on the ground? Thanks very much for having me here. Yeah, I can talk about the importance of gender in an energy transition in two ways. So the first is from a sectoral perspective. I think very few people think about this, but actually the energy sector is extremely gendered from the production distribution to the uses of it. When we think about decision making in the energy sector, energy planning, for example, a lot of the technocrats in Southeast Asia are predominantly men. And they make decisions about where should power plants go, um, who is the user of energy, who gets to have an energy access. And so without women's perspectives in these en important energy decisions, um, their needs are not that much considered. Uh, there's also really big divides in the energy sector between rural and urban areas. For many rural women in Southeast Asia, they are still very dependent on firewood, for example, collecting it, spending hours and hours of their time going out, collecting fuelwood, firewood for cooking needs. This has implications on a woman's time. We call it the double burden. So because women have less time at home to have productive uses, to to make money, to have an income because they're spending a lot of their time collecting firewood or cooking or fulfilling domestic duties. If we envision a future where women are participating as professionals in a low carbon economy, are they still carrying that double burden of having to cook at home, to take uh, collecting firewood? You know, all these things are important to consider. And from a holistic societal perspective, I think that a just transition in the energy sector is just a greater call for justice. It's not a sectoral issue. We are trying to think of a way in which sustainable economies, low carbon economies are going to be more just. 
how are there going to be less inequality within our society? And where are women and other members of marginalized groups within this society? So those are important justice implications to think about that goes beyond just the energy sector issues. Right. Like energy access really cuts to the heart of opportunities for communities for women, right? Especially in rural areas. Um, Amira, what's your experience with this um, from your position from the ASEAN Centre of Energy? You worked on the RE Gender Roadmap based on, you know, your research, your experiences on the ground. What are you seeing in terms of, you know, the intersection between gender and energy transition? Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. And I think it's great that we kind of like heard here from me. Um, one thing that uh, we are a firm believe uh, that weaving women's potential into the ASEAN um, energy dynamics is that it could create positive snowball effects in promoting gender equity, bolstering the renewable energy investments even, and accelerating climate mitigation efforts. Based on the ASEAN and gender outlook and state of gender equality and climate change in ASEAN, the report actually highlights that alarming uh, gender inequality in the energy sector, which is again dominated by fossil fuels and relies on dirty fuels for cookings, putting women's health um, dispro at disproportionate risk, and they are the major domestic energy consumers. And moreover, women's employment rate in this sector is only 8%, which is uh, insane to think about it because it it leaves very few women benefiting from it. And there is the study that we are actually conducting at ACE um, titled um, ASEAN Energy and Gender Report on Development Finance uh, that shows the region actually received only 6.2% of the 11.4 billion uh, US dollars spent for the energy and gender projects. The report actually shows that projects with gender objective and related terms will increase visibility in donors' countries' development assistance strategies. And those, if we complement gender to energy projects, it will actually provide better opportunities to secure those potential funding for energy transitions. Um, right now, as you mentioned, ACE has provided a breakthrough uh, by publishing the ASEAN RE Gender Roadmap uh, aimed to chart a pathway to accelerate renewable energy development in ASEAN. This roadmap is something that is, you know, first of its kind uh, in the energy sector in Southeast Asia. Really interesting roadmap. I mean, I was going through it also and I was looking at the, you know, the different years from year one to year five. What do we have to do? But I mean, just just one quick follow up, Amira. I think to me, it's really interesting that, you know, you were mentioning um, the sponsors, the funders of clean energy projects. They want to see some kind of, you know, gender elements in the clean energy policies. I'm just wondering, you know, what are some of the specifics they're asking for? Is it, you know, a certain percentage of women in the workforce or is it a certain process or where you do things that considers um, gender within, you know, clean energy development? What are the specifics they are looking for? And it's been about half a year since the RE roadmap launched. What has been the responses and progress since then? Yeah. So actually, uh, this roadmap actually stems from the agreed statement by the ASEAN member states during the 39th ASEAN Ministers on Energy Meeting in 2021. Actually, ACE then teamed up with the Empower Project, uh, which is implemented by the UN Environmental Environment Program and then UN Women to develop this tool. Basically, there is not much of a say um, like 
you know, very specific, oh, is it should be a number or so because this is a very preparatory measures that we are actually providing for the ASEAN member states policymakers um, to get interested and invest a little bit in their political will. And it also actually could inform us what is the potential collaborations to other countries that is more experienced, let's say, or even dialogue partners or international organizations that have a better understanding on the issues in the coming years to support ASEAN ambitions. One of the things that I might really highlight is that engaging policymakers in the development of these tools actually a bit challenging. Um, first up, from the data collection processes that the team received limited responses, even after conducting webinars, focus group discussions with them. I would say that the awareness of the representative from each ASEAN member states um, remains limited. I wouldn't necessarily say that everyone, but there are some countries and most probably because the focal points themselves are usually from an energy background which is have a limited exposure to that intersections to gender approach and convincing policymakers themselves to take this unusual route actually requires a strategic approach so that we are putting our best efforts to emphasize the benefits of integrating gender in energy policy and planning. Uh, right now, this year is actually very special. This year, the ASEAN Energy Blueprint APAIC actually will conduct a midterm review. So if we can actually take this opportunity um, to, in, to have a bit of interventions or inclusions of gender um, issues there actually provides a momentous opportunity to incorporate gender further in the ASEAN Energy Blueprint and firm up ASEAN member states' political will. Next year, ASEAN will start developing the next phase of API for 2026 until 2035, which is uh, pose a very golden opportunity. Gotcha. Thank you, Amira. I think so many talking points just from your response alone. But let, let me jump back to me. I'm just wondering, I want to uh, hear your perspective on this issue. Um, and also, you know, the question is really how unique is Southeast Asia in terms of the challenges it faces? In a sense that I, I believe you, you mentioned to me before in your research, you looked at big hydropower projects, um, biofuel, agriculture. It seems like a, every one of these touches on both energy and gender, if not just the wider rural community. So I'm just wondering you know, how unique is the situation here and you know what kind of solutions are we looking at? Um, I think the situation is unique in Southeast Asia for a couple of reasons, some of which Amir has already pointed out, that a lot of the decision makers are technocrats. Not only are women not included in it, in decision making, but also they lack the uh, STEM skills in order to make it to those, to those positions. Um, and that is an educational problem. And there are other gender norms as well that exist like, oh, uh, this profession is too masculine for you. Why are you an engineer? You know, it's not a feminine trait. Um, the other thing is the patriarchal structures that are in place. So the fossil fuel sector, uh, for example, in Indonesia, is a very tight-knit group of political elites. Um, and that is a very, very strong patriarchy. So if we're trying to envision a new pathway where renewables are predominant and women have a say in decision making, we really have to break down some of these 
real strong patriarchies that are in place. There are also other practices that are potentially unique to Southeast Asia about meaningful consultations of communities in the decision-making around where do hydropower plants go? What about biomass plantations for the cultivation of oil palm? Are women and their communities sufficiently consulted about the decision-making around this? And often they are not because women, more so than men, do not have secure land tenure. Usually the land is in their husband's names. Then they don't benefit from compensation. They suffer from displacement and also gender-based violence that occurs as a result of some of these large-scale infrastructure development projects. I'd also like to add that a big thing to question in Southeast Asia as a part of this transition is, will we have sufficient systems of welfare to enable women to get to those professional careers? Are we going to have scholarship training programs that are targeted towards women so that they can be decision makers and leaders in a low carbon economy? It, it ties into what Amira said earlier also, right? Amira, you mentioned that um, one of your experiences talking to policymakers is that it seemed unusual for them to, to try to combine, to wrap their head around both energy and gender at the same time. But I think from, a, I, Amira, I'd just like to ask you from a governance perspective, looking across Southeast Asia based on, you know, what how, how governments, how ministries are set up, just wondering, you know, what does good governance look like? Is it kind of like a new department in the energy ministry? more consultations or, you know, yeah, at a governance level, what needs to change? Yeah. So in the region level, actually, plus placing a gender specialist at the heart of implementing a Gen C like ACE. I mean, uh, one of the things is that we are actually walking the talk and supporting the ASEAN energy agenda, but we are, we don't even have a gender specialist here. So having them Placing at the heart of uh, implementing agency would be the first thing to do. And then second, I would say that equipping ASEAN policymaking processes with an educate advisory groups would actually enhance the exposure of not only gender, but also other cross-sectoral and multi-level issues, specifically gaining first-hand insights from the grassroots level. So based on the ASEAN RE gender roadmap as well, it is also preferred to have a very specific gender working group uh, that which brought uh, the ASEAN member states policymakers, energy gender experts, local communities, private companies, universities, and relevant regional or international institutions together, which tasked to sustain the gender mainstreaming efforts and conducting monitoring, reviewing, and planning way forward to ensure sustainability of these gender efforts. Gender mainstreaming efforts needs to be sustained, uh, needs to be reviewed, to be monitored at every level, at every year um, on the development. Some countries actually may view establishing a new department actually as a requiring additional budget. So sometimes they don't opt to that option uh, because they, they are thinking that, okay, having a new department would actually have no immediate return, especially because sometimes um, gender-related approach is not something that is like countable in a way for people uh, to understand, and therefore a strategic approach should be taken. For example, we really appreciate the system in the Philippines where the Department of Energy there were actually equipped with the gender toolkit and a gender and development focal point system. 
and based on the guidelines actually provided by the Philippine Commission on Women. The focal point itself consists of executive committee, technical working group, secretariat, implementers, and even gender mainstreaming monitoring system focal persons within the Department of Energy. So you, you could see that uh, a very complex, but also at the same time, uh, engaging every high level position. And this system actually mainly responsible for leading mainstreaming gender across energy policies, plans and programs, setting up an appropriate systems and mechanism for collecting and processing sex disaggregated data in which remaining ASEAN member state actually could replicate these best practices and tailor that to their needs and uh, budget availability. So one of the things we could even envision projects of renewable energy is actually led by women because they could have better understanding on how uh, energy, because they are energy managers per se, energy consumers, uh, and then they are actually better understanding in communities as well. So having them provided in the energy, gender responsive policy in renewable energy would actually something that we look forward. And at the same time, I think having them a space, a safe space for them to represent the woman's interest as well in the energy sectors would actually be great. I mean, before I mentioned advisory groups or even working groups per se. So having them involved there is also something that we we really wanted to see in the couple of years or a couple of decades. Yeah, I, I agree completely with what Amira has been saying about governance and also about energy policy. And I just thought I would add a few more things. I'd like to call attention to the importance of establishing processes, clear processes for communities to be involved in the planning um, of just transitions. And so this should be transparent and public by the government to ensure that communities, women's groups, groups of other actors um, like small uh, SMEs who are women-owned, for example, can be involved in the process of energy planning. Um, and also there should be systems of accountability. Maybe there could be community monitoring where they can text in when something that the government has committed to has not been followed through. On the energy policy, good gender integration would involve, yes, a gender audit to ensure that disaggregated impacts can be understood. So, for example, there are some studies that show that without proper understanding of energy use and energy needs, female-headed households would be the last to be connected to an energy grid. So things like that need to be addressed and understood. Um, and in Southeast Asia, we have lots of different types of energy uses by women. There are lots of people on the street selling uh, food on skewers. Um, there are small businesses on carts and their energy needs would be different at home than in their businesses when they are out on the street. Gotcha. And I think um, one last follow up here before we move on to other talking points, both speakers um, You've mentioned about the challenges in data. I think that was a particular challenge, Amira, when you're coming up with the, the RE gender roadmap. But I think May also focused a lot on um, inherent power dynamics, current power cultures and perceptions uh, in, in Southeast Asia. I'm just wondering, you know, what do you see is the bigger issue here, the lack of data or just, you know, the, the current perceptions towards 
perhaps gender and energy, or are they linked? Yeah. yeah. So I think um, if you read the roadmap, we actually identified a lot of like challenges. But then one of the core issues that I find uh, have ripple effects to the others out of the tree that you mentioned is the lack of data availability on gender in energy sectors. How can we solve problems if we don't even understood what is the core issues about it? We, we understood now like the, the bigger sense of it, but again, the details of it, it's, it's not there yet. The ASEAN still have a very limited data collections capabilities on sexist and disaggregated data. And especially as mentioned before, policymakers mostly requires evidence-based, data-based, or even model-based policies in which the region still lacking. So building the region's capacity to enrich its gender data on energy would provide better understanding during its awareness dissemination and its actual policy reform. So right now, ASEAN actually have a lot of um, platforms. So we have ASEAN Energy Database System, or ADS, um, placed in ASEAN to support any related gender data. But if we can actually complement that into something more than just a technological approach or like the data about modeling of projections of the investments, let's say, but more to a social approach social broader issues could actually provide uh, a better understanding for policymakers. So one thing to note again, gender data and benefits sometimes are not countable, unlike any other way that stems or like energy um, sectors in nature. So therefore the region actually calls for external parties to actually support technically uh, or even financially to support this um, ambition for ASEAN to start improving their data capacity, data collections, and management of uh, gender data. Mm. And May, you know, what's your take on this? So yeah, completely agree with Amira, but I also, uh, for me personally, I see it as a twofold issue. Data is really important and we're unable to understand what the issues are if we don't have the data. But the reason the data is not collected, for example, can be for several reasons. First is the perception issue. Gender is not important, so why should we collect data on this? That can be you know, one of the drivers of a lack of data. And the other thing I would say is uh, the lack of strong research institutions or the, or the consideration of decision makers to, to value the importance of research in decision making. Yeah, I, I think evidence-based decision-making is, is important, and, and I, I really support it. I mean, Singapore, yes, definitely, you have very strong research institutions that can inform evidence-based decision-making. But, for example, in my country, where the education from Myanmar, where the education system is very lackluster, uh, there are no strong research institutions that can provide and collect data in a systematic way, like Amira was saying. Mm -hmm. So it almost boils down as a chicken and egg issue almost between, between you know, perceptions and data. All right, uh, I think just one last major talking point I wanted to touch on. Um, I came across this research on um, coal phase out in the Western nations in UK and US. I think they started decades before Southeast Asia were at the start. But this piece of research stood out to me in that 
it mentioned that um you know with with cold face out happening in those countries there were a lot of gender consequences if i may um for example there are some benefits because men kind of lost their jobs in the coal sector women came out to work more and that that there were some associated benefits but this trend also aggravated certain power imbalances for example men they were not used to this shift in power and also there were increased um instances of violence and gender violence just wondering at this stage in southeast asia how applicable how relevant are these insights and are there lessons to be learned here um may do you want to just continue on Yeah, I think there is a lot to learn from that. So you already mentioned all the highlights of of the findings, which is that there will be um impacts of a change in gender roles between men and women. And there could be consequences for women as a result because men feel that their masculinity has been taken away because they've lost their jobs uh as coal coal miners as the bread earner for families and that's something that we can learn in southeast asia as well that when we phase out when we decarbonize the role of women are going to change when there are when women have stronger education when their roles in the in the domestic responsibility and the domestic realm change there will be systems of power that are not used to women having a new voice uh and role as income earners. And so I these are societal changes that we need to take into account and also plan for. This could be protections to make sure that women don't suffer from gender-based violence at home when there is a rebalancing of power asymmetries. This could be making sure that women can take up meaningful jobs. So what happened with the US and UK coal transitions that women were uh became income earners because men lost their jobs but they got poor quality jobs they were administrative uh people they had part-time roles they didn't have the kinds of jobs that um professionals should have in a a low carbon economy and so i i think we already see this throughout southeast asia women the the, the 8% that amira mentioned that are involved in the energy sector many of them will be in administrative roles hr not in leadership decision making roles and as technical roles so we need to make sure that women have high quality jobs when we do transition and that's very much about education vocational training and also systems of support like we mentioned before equal pay family benefits uh good quality leave all of that uh maternity paternity leave but also another important thing is the psychological impacts of change losing your job and becoming um rebalancing the power asymmetries this has psychological impacts on people and so the mental health and well-being of people should also be emphasized gotcha and i think i i didn't mention the authors of this research i should have it as a note here i'll link it to the story but yeah amira just wondering what's your take on this Actually this is very relevant to us and and it might be something that would be happening in the in the next decades or so in the region because coal phase down would be everywhere and then new uh, renewable jobs would actually be thriving so somehow we kind of like see this as a something a projections that is a more uh, realistic in a way but there is not yet a dedicated study in asean yet 
on this. So hopefully it can actually trigger uh, researchers, academicians, or even um, project reports to kind of like elaborate and explore this untapped issues. And the insights that I read so far on that paper is that it it can be somehow put as a warning to the region's policymakers and provide a tailored preventive measures embedded in the policy planning. It can be something that could pose as a reference to, um, and a form of policies that could actually cushion cold transitions effects on women and empower them, as well as to participate actively and as in shall take this into consideration, the potential issues, the lesson learned that they've done, and perhaps do a lot of comparative studies before tailored down to the regions. I, I just wanted to add one more thing that I think it's really important. The, the studies from the UK and US showed that the effects of a coal transition, coal closure, are societal, and they're not just limited to the household level. So that is something that I, I really hope that in Southeast Asia, we take that into consideration. Because in, in our countries, it's not just about the coal miners, it's about communities of people that are revolving their lives around an industry. So people are selling food to coal miners. There are tuk-tuk drivers that are making their livelihoods of, of transporting goods uh, for this industry. So for this reason, I think it's really important to understand the community level impacts of uh, mine closure, but also the informal workers whose lives will be impacted when the, when the mine closes. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I mean, we've covered so many points, um, so many talking points from data, culture, governance, and what to expect in the future. Maybe just one short question, wrap up this podcast. I'm just wondering, you know, we've been talking about some solutions here and there, be it uh, consultations, new forms of new structures of governance, more financing and support for women. I'm just wondering, looking across these solutions, do you think the solutions are in the form of, you know, simple, short of silver bullet, but immediately feasible fixes that bring along big impacts? Or are we looking at a bigger systemic change? Um, Amira, let's start with you. In the energy sector itself, we already have so many issues. And now if we wanted to bring it to another whole level of a greater understanding of social toll approach, I lean towards the need of systemic change. As I mentioned, uh, the inclusion of gender issues mentioned in the APAIC would be the start of political will to firm up a political will of the ASEAN states and then providing um, the needed milestones to lead the huge change on how the region would react. And as laid out in the roadmap, um, raising awareness, uh, developing database uh, on gender and energy. And then once it's actually established, the next stage would be designing the policy, understanding the policy framework for each country, having a gender responsive budget, financial framework, and so forth, and having to have a develop a monitoring and evaluation framework for these policy implementations as well. So having that, establishing a lot of new working groups, advisory groups, and many other things, uh, supporting infrastructures that we need to bring, it means that systemic change would be needed. Yeah, agree with Amira. I think systematic change, systemic change is necessary uh, in order to transition to a future where marginalized people 
are included in decision making. It's about dismantling the power structures that are in place that characterize the current fossil fuel uh, economy and making sure that inequalities and inequities are addressed. So those are big, big questions. But I also strongly believe that it is possible for small scale solutions um, to, to have an impact. For example, conversations like this, I think it's important for us to um, share our perspectives and our learnings about why it's important to consider gender in a just transition. Um, it's important to go home and talk to your your family about the role of women in society. You know, that it's beginning to take the steps to change the the gender norms that characterize our society through conversations that I think are important building blocks in this bigger vision of change that we wish to see. One thing that probably like the shortest term uh, of visions that I would like is that we are talking about gender and energy at all time of the year. So not only on March. So I mean, a lot of things is always there on March due to the International Women's Month. But I guess it would be great to have it like all year long talking about this as part of our priorities. And not not only across the years, but like like you mentioned, uh, across all levels of society, be it in a family, um, in your grassroots, and I'm sure Mira will be doing this at you know at, at national and you know ASEAN levels. So yeah, I think this is a great place to leave this conversation, and also really looking forward to you know the actual policy steps that um, Southeast Asia will take in the years ahead. So that's been Amira Bilkis, Energy Modeling and Policy Planning Associate at the ASEAN Center for Energy, and May Tazin Ong, Climate Change Researcher at the International Institute for Environment and Development. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation at eco-business.com. Follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletters. Thanks for listening.